0: I strongly believe in prevention, whether it is making it easier to develop robust secure software, make it easier to actually secure your systems so that they're more robust, or whether it is education of developers, education of personnel, and similar, securing your remote workforce. You're listening to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp Podcast.
1: Hello everyone, today I have a very special guest, Carol Oblo. He is a partner in Evolution Equity Partners and what makes him really special is the fact that he is one of the authorities, especially in the investment world around cybersecurity. Cybersecurity is something that we've been familiar with for a long time. It's taken more and more of a presence because of various things that are going on in the world and some of the risks companies have, data breaches and whatnot. And he was one of the people who was part of that journey earlier in his career, and which we'll touch upon as CEO of AVG, which as you might recognize is one of the big names in security, especially for personal use, but of course at the enterprise level as well. So what we're going to do today is we're going to unpack not only some of his experience as an operator, but also his experience as an investor and how he helps companies manage everything from go-to-market to dealing with the challenges of selling a product that is effectively a very protective product rather than a revenue-generating product. So with that, welcome, Carol. Thanks a lot for having me. My pleasure. Well, let's start with who you are. What was the first job you had after you graduated from university, before you ended up at ABG? So actually, I had a job as a programmer
0: even before I graduated. That was the times of late 80s, early 90s. So late 80s, I was working in a computing center as a programmer, intern, then in a number of smaller companies as intern programmer, and had a few attempts to create programs for some friends. One of them actually happened to be the founder of Grissoft, which eventually became AVG, but that was before the cybersecurity era, doing something completely different. And then my focus was primarily on database systems, so programmer of database systems in a local company.
1: All right. Tell us a little bit about that transition into what became ABG. Absolutely. So I was
0: a programmer originally started coding, developing database systems, pretty unique database systems, actually, that were way ahead of the systems back then, my boss and my mentor was a genius or still is a genius. He was not that business savvy, but technologically he was really clever. We developed a network database system that was much faster than any other system back then, and it's actually still in use in applications. And then after many years with that company, I stayed there for over 10 years, which back then was pretty normal, at least in this part of the world, to work for one company for five, seven, eight years. So after 10 years, I decided, okay, it was time for me to try something new, something different. And that was when my friends from the times of university and similar persuaded me to join Grisoft, a local company creating antivirus. We joked it wasn't a garage company, it was a balcony company because it was actually founded on a balcony of one small house here in Brno in the Czech Republic. And I joined when we still had only, inverted commas only, about 3 million users worldwide. And I joined to take over engineering as a CTO, and just maybe a small correction, I was interim CEO of AVG as well, but my main role, and for the most part, I was CTO and then chief scientist of AVG technologies. So they persuaded me to join and help them fix engineering and then product delivery.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting story and it spans quite a number of years. So we're going to have to try to unpack that a little bit because I think, you know, there's probably tons of anecdotes that we could go into. So first of all, let's unpack the sort of the shell of an antivirus company and maybe the fundamentals of what that race looks like. There's clearly the people who make the viruses and there's the organizations that try to combat it with the signatures for those viruses. Maybe just walk us through the nature of that element of cybersecurity and how that industry works. Yeah, absolutely. And just maybe I'll start
0: a little bit earlier before I even joined Microsoft at the times of early 2000, roughly, when viruses, when somebody said that virus was spreading quickly, that meant, well, within one month, the virus actually spread across Europe, you know, floppy disks, no internet connectivity, no emails that was when virus were spreading really quickly. And that's also how updates to antivirus products were distributed via floppy disks, modem connectivity, and downloads from BBS stations and and similar. So back then it was more about trying to find a sample of virus that is spreading quickly, inverted commas, quickly, Uh, trying to find that sample, analyze it. That was the time when viruses were becoming more and more complex, trying to hide somehow in the system by various obfuscation techniques and infecting individual files. That's still not many listeners probably remember the times of Microsoft DOS or MS-DOS or Microsoft Windows, even before Windows 95. So that's when the vast majority of viruses were infecting individual files, so getting hold of individual files, analyzing it, trying to find out what the virus is doing, and trying to discover how to actually create a detection, but more importantly, disinfectors, so kind of remediate the damage and provide any tools to make the system clean again and without the need of reinstallation. This has changed over the years. Then times came when viruses started spreading via emails, email worms, and then internet connectivity, increasing internet connectivity, and the fact that people now actually live on the internet with their mobile devices as well as desktops. This has changed the whole ecosystem dramatically because viruses now are spreading, well, in milliseconds, obviously, but then there are also hundreds of thousands new samples of viruses every day. So now it is not possible anymore to analyze individual families of viruses. And if the researchers do that, they do it because they want to understand how a specific group of attackers work. What are their methods of operation? What type of damage they do, whether they exfiltrate information, whether they encrypt information, and similar. So the use of artificial intelligence, both on attacker sides and on defender side, has increased significantly. And the sheer amount of data that has to be processed these days, every day, has completely changed the nature of a typical day of an antivirus researcher within a company. Now it's more about processing data, creating advanced models trying to analyze what's going on. It is more about analyzing specific samples. It's then more forensics work, like what that particular family of viruses is doing and who is the attacker maybe trying to find out and how to maybe also minimize damage that is done by these attacks.
1: Yeah. And without stepping on any landmines here, it would be interesting to get your thoughts on those groups you mentioned, because I think we talk about antivirus and viruses as if like they're born out of nothingness, right? But the reality is, there's a really good book for those that are listening, Spam Nation, that kind of goes into some extent the origins of spam and where it came from and who the actors are behind it. But from a virus point of view, is there a concentration in, and how does the concentration of those groups help companies stay ahead of some of this data sets? Because it's almost like if you understand where the incentives are, the more you can sort of look for the vectors. This has evolved significantly
0: as well. So early on in the 80s, 90s, attackers, virus writers were a significant part of, of the scene, were people who just wanted to demonstrate their skills. They did it for fun. They did it to maybe make a statement, like political statement and similar. That was a significant part of the virus writing scene back in the 80s, 90s, when it all started. Eventually, the criminals discovered viruses as an opportunity, and cyber criminals. I mean, similarly to other criminals, they just went where the money was. And therefore, they started using spam, ransomware, viruses for various purposes. First, to just distribute spam and take over systems, and steal money from accounts. And then, obviously, what we are seeing now, more recently, ransomware, data exfiltration, and similar. So these were cyber criminals primarily, and criminals, and doesn't matter whether they come from, I don't know, Romania, Russia, United States, or Brazil. I mean, you have criminals everywhere, pretty much. These are just cyber criminals. They're after the money. Then, significant efforts were put into cyber warfare by nations, so state-sponsored attacks. We've been seeing that since late 2000s, the first attacks in 2007, 2008, that were clearly sponsored by nations, and since then we've seen a lot of that activity going on as well. So that's the second group, professionals who are hired to actually attack systems, and then there are professionals who work for just stealing data for industrial espionage, and we're seeing that as well. And we saw first. Attempts that we're not using internet with distribution via USB disk, CDs, so not floppy disks, but CDs uh, distributed via mail. I mean traditional mail. So in an envelope, there was a CD with printout like company presentation. And the attackers hoped that somebody would put that CD into their CD drive, and somebody really did. And that's how the attackers were exfiltrating data and trying to steal data. So this is another sector that is probably now more visible in attacks targeted at the United States or the UK or the more developed nations and their industries.
1: Yeah, and that's a good history of the groups and their motivations and their methods. But I'm curious as to what you've seen over the years also from a government point of view in enabling and/or protecting companies. You know, you look at as the rise of state-sponsored actors or the rise of professionalizing this act, is how much have you seen governments either react in a way that can defend local companies, either by providing resources or or software or whatever, or alternatively, how much have you seen governments starting to take an offensive view where they're enabling companies to fight back? And just curious as to what you're seeing evolve there over that same time frame. If I start from the last part
0: of the question, whether the governments are kind of encouraging private companies to fight back. And I'm not seeing that, at least not in the more developed world, where really the governments would just encourage companies and not giving them orders to what to do. And and this is what you do and you have to do it or else. So this is not an approach that would be recommended by cybersecurity experts. And from what I know, the group of people who suggest we should be, or the companies should be fighting back That group of experts is in minority. Uh, vast majority of experts take the stance of trying to protect and just uh, maybe learn from what's going on, learn about the techniques that the attackers are using. It's more about tracking, more about analysis of attack techniques, attack vectors, and less about fighting back. What companies can do, and they do it, and it's more about not the companies that protect themselves, but rather the companies in the security space, What they do is they try to take down hostile servers. They try to take down hostile domains, predict what domains the attackers will be using or what servers and trying to shut them down. That's an initiative that is being used or technique that is being used for many years, whether on the domain naming system or just taking down servers and legal actions and similar. So that's something that's going on, but active counterattack definitely not something that the governments would be encouraging private companies to do. Having said that, I believe that the cyber, whatever the department within the government is called, so cyber department, cyber warfare, or part of military cyber offensive units, they definitely exist whether it's Israel, whether it's the United States, whether it's Russia, China. We know that, I mean, those governments acknowledge that they actually have those cyber military units And we have clear evidence of them actually being very active in in various events before. The governments now getting back to the first part of your question about how this has evolved and whether the governments have originally or how much they were trying to protect their companies or their industries and the whole ecosystem. I think it took quite long before the governments actually started to acknowledge that there is a risk, that there is a risk for critical infrastructure, but also that there is a risk on just economy as a whole, and that it costs lots of money. And now I think the situation has improved significantly. Now we're seeing initiatives and actually even regulation being implemented that requires that companies protect themselves, that they take active measures to protect their systems and security. We see lots of initiatives in securing privacy, uh, whether it's of privacy of their employees, but also privacy of data that the companies collect. So all that is improving, moving in the right direction, whether it's enough, I don't think so, but at least something's
1: going on. Well, that's a good starting point to continue down this path of what you've seen at AVG, but this time from a sales point of view with government obviously being more involved, CEOs becoming more aware, I'm curious about what the sales engineering process looked like early days for AVG and how that evolved. And in particular, I'm curious about how, for example, you would have, I mean, I remember early days when you would have antivirus of any kind, it would reduce the computing power of the computer just because of the Impact and and although this is a dated example, the reason why I'm asking it, especially for the listeners wondering, you know, why we're doing history here, is because there's always going to be an impact to an organization when you're selling cybersecurity software or services. From a historical context, you probably experienced that from a tech department or users pushing back on the impact it had on slowing down their computers. And I suspect there's some equivalent today for people. I'm just curious how you guys dealt with that, how you set up your sales organization to deal with that, how your engineering team adapted to try to fix that and and how that evolved internally.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So actually ABG or Grisov back then had, I believe pretty good antivirus engine. So technology itself was not bad at all. Probably was not the best one, but it was pretty good. However, what we invented or the founder pretty much invented was the freemail model. So back in 97, 98, he actually said, I even remember 95, 94, when the antivirus was still sold only and just traditional distribution. And there was a license code. And when uh, somebody got hold of license code, they were just pirating the license code. And we were able to track that. And we were, my friends at Chrisoft were tracking that. And I remember the founder actually said, do not disable the license code, even though we know it's stolen, do not disable it because from time to time, we might disable a few of those just to make it a kind of sport for those who want to steal it. But I'd rather see everybody using AVG on their system than the users paying for a competitive product. Back then, actually, a, I'd rather see them use AVG than Norton, which is a nice coincidence just uh, today I had that Avast, which acquired eventually AVG and Norton, the, the last obstacle on the way to their merge was uh, was overcome and Norton and Avast are now merging. So eventually, I mean, that, that's the end of the whole story. But back then the founder said, I'd rather see everybody have AVG, stolen AVG on their system than paying to Norton. And then from that, the Freeman model evolved. And in ninety nine, 98, 99, the company actually started offering antivirus for free for personal use, not for business use which was a great marketing tool but it also allowed us to actually have people test the antivirus on their system have them resolve their security issues on their system so they could actually scan their system whether there were any viruses or not clean the system remove the viruses and also test that the impact on the system on their computer was not that bad it wasn't as big as they feared it would be because at the same time because we wanted to offer it for free. It was so easy to actually install AVG on a system without paying a dime. We really had to try hard to offer something for the users who were paying for it. Yes, license conditions were only for personal use, but obviously many businesses, including one big hotel chain, were using AVG against the license conditions, they were not paying for it. So we had to show this is something that is worth paying for. And that was the extra service that we were offering, faster updates, but also much better support, at least some support provided. And that was a nice story also from one of our big customers back then, 20 years ago, I probably can share the name. It was Pilsner Urquell, one of the famous brewery, at least here in Central Europe, very famous brewery. They were customers back then. And one day they called us that AVG caused their system, their servers to actually collapse and crash. It was a big customer. So we immediately asked them for access to their systems and for crash dumps and everything. Our engineers with the highest priority started analyzing the crash dumps. What they found out was that one of the memory blocks in the server was actually defective. It was faulty and it was returning random values. So it wasn't a fault of AVG back then, it was a fault of a memory chip in their server, and we helped them with that. And because of that, because of such a support that customers got from us, they were actually willing to pay, and they were paying for the extra service for the support. So they could test for free that the system was providing value without slowing down their systems, actually protecting them. And then they were willing to pay on their business system, business critical system, they were willing to pay for this extra service.
1: You know, for any founder who's listening to this, obviously, it's a fun story. But at the same time, it does beg the question as to whether or not cybersecurity in terms of maybe there's a few exceptions, of course, but whether it's the kind of software product or the kind of service that requires a sort of viral entry into the organization before the organization can justify paying for it. How do you advise your companies that are thinking about cybersecurity services to monetize and manage their go-to-market so that they can get that early sort of evangelism internally before trying to charge?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. There are obviously services that are designed and products and services that are designed for large enterprises only where the customer or the decision maker would be CFO or CIO, CSO so senior roles, and there the strategy would be different. But more and more often what we are seeing are products that are designed for developers or, or employees where the strategy really is trying to get bottom-up, try to get into as many people within the organization as, as possible, use a viral approach, and then start charging for a service. However, very important point here is, first of all, think about really the business model, what you will be charging for in the end. Do not start with something free and then charge for part of it. From the very beginning, be absolutely sure about who will be paying for your service or for your product, how you will eventually monetize the product. And it could be the, the way that Google started where somebody else was paying for the product, actually, not the consumer, not the end user. That is perfectly valid. But They also knew from very early on what the final model will look like, starting with something free and then hoping that I will start adding pieces to this and maybe monetizing on advertisements. I don't think that works anymore. And I actually don't think that it worked from the very beginning because even with Google, yes, they started with monetizing via advertisements or Facebook, but they knew it from the very beginning that this would be the monetization strategy. So I have to know from very early on, this is the monetization strategy. This is sufficient for me to continue developing the product. And there is clear value that would be easy to explain to the customer, clear value for paying for my extra service. And it must be absolutely clear and easy to explain to the customer what the value is. Otherwise, everybody would stick with the free product.
1: I mean, to some extent, this answer is largely around the possibility of having a free product and then having value to charge later. But in your experience is the bulk of the ideas out there for cybersecurity, you know, can there be any generalizations on how to like really get that early customer to take you on? Is there like any best practices that you tell your founders that you work with on how to explore getting that poc because it is such a pain for an early stage cybersecurity company to secure those first few contracts that you know will trust them with having software deep in what are the trade-offs that you recommend there what other mechanisms for billing you know obviously there's sas and that's fine but if you want to have any meaty contracts that can be a big hurdle to a customer to look at it before value shown
0: It's very much Depends. Uh, Fortunately or unfortunately for founders in the cybersecurity space, cybersecurity by itself or security is very broad term. We don't look at it as a vertical. We look at it as horizontal. It's pretty much everywhere. The opportunity is enormous. So many different products that you can develop and I believe are needed and in demand. At the same time, with so many opportunities, certain products or certain types of products are good for this viral or ideal for this viral distribution. So products that are designed for developers, DevSecOps, or products that are designed for consumers or or end users, privacy for consumers, maybe, yeah, privacy is probably a typical fine example for mobile devices and similar or individual devices, where I can see that viral really works. And you just want to design a product that is sticky, that immediately shows the value that you're offering. And at the same time, there must be a way to actually stay in front of the user's eyes, which is sometimes difficult because what you're trying to do is minimum impact on how the user actually is using their device and at the same time stay relevant. So actually make the user aware of the fact that the product is still there. So that's the challenge, trying to find the balance there. For more enterprise-level products or network products, this does not work. And there, what you have to do is try to find a contract within your segment, try to find a few customers who would be your POC customers, your kind of champions. Find a champion within that customer, so somebody you can work with who can actually promote your product and help you design it the way that customer wants. And at the same time, what we're typically advising our very early stage companies, which is not our typical investment, but nevertheless, we do have some early stage businesses. Try to listen to your early customers, but at the same time, try not to become their R&D centers. So sometimes just listening to one or two customers only might skew your product strategy and, and, and might just shift you away from where you should be. So just because this particular customer who is really big wants feature A and B does not mean that everybody wants feature A and B. And if this particular customer wants it, I don't know, yellow, doesn't mean that everybody wants this software yellow or violet. So uh, that's very important. Understand your customer, but at the same time, try to get as much feedback as possible from the target market. So offering something for free might be a good option. But at the same time, you need to adjust your business model to whoever your target
1: customer is. Okay, well, we move on to another piece of some of the challenges that companies have early stage, aside from business modeling, is how to balance the speed of development and efficiency with being secure themselves, right? As you know, that's a whole separate exercise. And AVG as a startup probably went through that, right? Like how much am I securing my customers versus how much am I securing myself from some of these very issues, everything from viruses, but intrusion and other things, because you probably were a target to take down. So what advice do you give to entrepreneurs out there who are kind of trying to balance this, but also any good anecdotes Mm -hmm. from early days, AVG trying to balance external and and internal?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So. First of all the advice would be do not underestimate the importance of security in your software whatever software you're building to you just it is improving the software is being now built with higher security standards and, and there are more tools available and platforms that could be used to evaluate security of your software at the same time still many people focus on just their technology and their product and that's it so do not underestimate that especially if you store customer data or If you live in the cloud, somehow the attackers are sometimes very innovative in ways how to either penetrate your systems or also what they can do with the data that you store, which we saw also like monitoring where people were doing their exercises or or running patterns or habits and similar. So these are things that should not be overlooked or underestimated. We were under attack several times, probably the one time where we thought we were under attack. Uh, And it was just uh, our own fault. So internal attacks included most often when we thought there was an attack, it was because of some stupid mistake in configuration and the server went down or build server was deleted. Uh, So one example was when my colleague from research lab ran into the next door into the office where The engineers were, and one of the newcomers was testing software and the latest addition to the remediation tool, so how to remove viruses. And he, by mistake, he ran it on the biggest collection of samples that the research lab was using for detection. And then all of a sudden, viruses started disappearing from the library that the researchers had. So that was just an example of poor configuration and poor judgment also. Uh, No attacks from the outside. So protecting your systems from yourself and your developers, is probably a good idea as well. And regular backup and monitoring is a good thing to do. You don't need sophisticated attackers to take your systems down. You can do that yourself much more easily, typically.
1: Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, that's a very good point. So moving on to where you are today, uh, tell us a little bit about Evolution Equity Partners and what you guys focus on.
0: Evolution Equity Partners is a fund that is focused on growth stage businesses. So our typical investments would be B or C round in North America and in Europe and in Israel. Cybersecurity is our core focus software, B2B enterprise software as well. And we're now raising fund three, our first two funds. We started back in 2015. So first two funds were investors in some successful businesses such as Carbon Black, Open DNS. Security scorecard on AppSys, LotPoint, DF Labs. I mean, it goes on and on. A number of successful businesses primarily in the cybersecurity space. We have five partners, offices, the biggest office in New York City, uh, in Palo Alto. We also have offices in Zurich, in Europe, and in London. And we try to cover and balance uh, both parts of the pond. And uh, our biggest, I would say, added value that we can offer is our hands-on experience with building really global businesses. So we actually, ourselves, we built businesses that were truly global, that grew from local European startup into a unicorn publicly traded at New York Stock Exchange. Myself, I helped to build R&D centers or build R&D centers that span across the globe with offices in many different time zones. So we know the challenges that founders have to go through. We know the mistakes and uh, actually all of us, all partners are available to startups, no matter which partner represents uh, Evolution Equity on the board. So founders can actually learn from our mistakes, but also our success stories and from our expertise in building cybersecurity business.
1: So as an investor, what are the areas that you are looking at and investing in right now within Evolution Equity Partners? And maybe... What are the areas that are not so obvious for other investors?
0: There are obvious targets and topics that are investment themes for other investors as well, such as cloud security, securing cloud workload, identity access management, and obviously privacy, so securing data privacy. Then there are some topics that are probably newer or more spoken about recently, such as securing remote workplace and workforce but then there are other topics such as the lack of security experts and personnel. So providing tools, platforms that help be more efficient, more secure, whether it is for developers or security experts, automating your security operation center, automating security in your workplace. And then there are other topics that we find very attractive or very interesting, such as education of workforce in general, security education. Recently, we invested in SiteSafe, and there are other businesses like that that try to educate regular employees that are not security experts, whether it's developers or just workforce in the office, making sure that everybody understands the risks of cybersecurity issues and try to actually improve security posture of businesses. And all these topics actually whether they overlap or uh, they're combined. So improving your security skills of your personnel is overlapped with securing remote workforce because your personnel actually works remotely. Uh, How to then make sure that the data that is typically stored somewhere in the cloud, how you access that data in a secure way, so identity access management, then how you make sure that, that the data is actually secure itself and how you can actually operate on that data built, for example, for data scientists, how to work with the data to build models without accessing private information, sensitive information, and similar. So all these topics are very attractive with identity access management, lack of personnel in security, lack of expertise, and cloud topics. These are probably the
1: leading ones. Cool. And where do you see some of the cutting edge stuff that is like Web3 and blockchain stuff really sitting in enterprises at the moment? You know, if a founder has got these ideas about whether it be intellectual property protection or whether it be about validation of specific files through blockchain, what is the inhibitor at the moment in adoption of these by enterprises? Is it just too early? I think it is still too early.
0: And there is lots of, uncertainty about what is the right strategy how do actually enterprise use this new technology what does it bring to them they're used to traditional technologies and implementing something new is always a challenge especially for large enterprise and when the things that you use are not broken why would you want to replace them if you do not see clear benefits so i'm pretty sure that the benefits of blockchain technology will Become more obvious as more and more use cases emerge, and not just in cryptocurrencies. I mean, that's something that obviously is very popular, but probably not of that use for large enterprises. I mean, but blockchain as a technology has many potential applications. And when the enterprises will start seeing those benefits and use cases, they will start implementing them. But I think there is lots of uncertainty about what technology is the right one and what are the clear benefits and whether those benefits really are bigger than the costs associated with deploying new technology, training staff, and actually replacing my existing systems.
1: If you had to take a look at the opportunities in the space to make a billion-dollar company and or the kinds of budget spend that companies have. And we were to loosely bucket companies in cybersecurity as either companies that deal with prevention, either companies that deal with detection, or companies that deal with defense. Where would you say the largest opportunities lie for the next decade or the next maybe three years of companies? What are the biggest areas where we're going to see the biggest replacement of technology, the biggest investment in technologies by enterprises across those three generalized buckets?
0: I strongly believe in prevention, whether it is, again, making it easier to develop robust secure software, make it easier to actually secure your systems so that they're more robust, or whether it is education, education of developers, education of personnel and similar, securing your remote workforce i see all that falls into the prevention bucket so how to make it easy to actually deploy systems how to make it easy to secure those systems in the first place and secure remote access which also comes hand in hand with identity access management that does not mean that the other two sectors that you mentioned are not attractive targets to build unicorns i mean i still believe that you can build unicorns in those areas as well detection is a big one fast detection analytics Yes, but the biggest bucket spent, I think, and the biggest opportunity for wide deployment is in
1: prevention. Excellent. That's helpful. If we were to now look at the amount of money that's gone into the sector, do you think that we're in a cybersecurity bubble? I mean, a lot of opportunities chasing one or two or three opportunities within an enterprise to roll out. Like It's not like an enterprise has eight different cybersecurity tools. I don't know if you have statistics about like how many cybersecurity tools any one organization has on average, but... Are we in a position now where there's too many companies chasing that and too much money has gone into the sector? Or is it just the beginning of what is now going to be the new normal of cybersecurity in every single country and organization? And we're just at the very beginning of that curve.
0: I don't think we're at the very beginning of that curve, but yes, the curve is there and it is growing. And there are companies that are trying to actually address that issue and are trying to provide more visibility into what your security posture is, whether you are spending your money most wisely, whether the ROI on your investment into security is good enough and where it is compared to others. So I think that there will be other companies, whether it's risk scoring companies such as security scorecard, or whether it's companies that do analysis and evaluation of your cyber hygiene, such as Panacea, just to name two companies from our portfolio. These opportunities will exist and will grow because yes, the number of security systems sometimes can be overwhelming.
1: What factors do you recommend for a founder to consider when choosing geographies for their expansion from the original home country? To-
0: it's very different in the US and in Europe. Many US startups can just focus on the U.S. and North America is such such a big market that they can succeed in North America. And then by the time they want to expand to other regions, whether it's Europe or Asia, they're actually big enough to be able to make their analysis and approach it properly. At the same time, they run into the risk of underestimating the challenges of expansion into other markets and cultures, because such a huge market as the the North American, you might underestimate differences and you might think that, hey, I conquered the US, so it would be easy to just expand to the UK. And then all of a sudden you find out that actually there are differences, regulatory differences, but also cultural and other differences when it's not sufficient just to parachute one person there. On the opposite side of the spectrum, in Europe, if your business is good enough to, or if you succeed in establishing your position in several countries in Europe, actually that is very challenging by itself. And then you might think that expanding to the US would be kind of on the same priority as expanding to Germany, if you're from France or similar, and then you underestimate the need for actually being in the U S having presence in the U S and seeing the U S as a unique market, not just another country that you could manage from your headquarters. So there are differences and challenges there, but uh, for Europeans, it's definitely worth considering expansion to neighboring countries and then get ready for expansion to the U S North America in general. It's a big market and the opportunity is huge for U S companies. Yes, it makes sense to expand, but be ready that it's very different from expanding from Delaware to California.
1: Yeah, fair enough. So last question, a bit of a fun one. We see Elon Musk constantly talking about how AI is now the biggest risk that we have for our society. And we saw this, I don't know if you saw this chess robot that broke a little kid's finger because the kid did something that was unexpected. From the evolution of cybersecurity, from what it is today, which is like there's a human actor who's got maybe economic motivations or geopolitical motivations, moving to AI actors, which could be either in the case of this robot, just sort of not having the priorities set straight, you know, Asimov's three laws of robotics. What does the future hold in your view? Is it a dystopian future where cybersecurity becomes us protecting ourselves from Skynet or is it a positive future and Elon Musk is overly worried?
0: I strongly believe that the future is positive. I'm a very positive person, and I think that there will always be things to be worried about. But I see it optimistic because I think the humankind is actually, hopefully, it is clever enough to find the best way forward,
1: no matter what. Well, that's very good, although it makes for less of a good science fiction movie, I must admit.
0: Uh, The positive (laughs) outlook.
1: The the negative one makes a good Arnold Schwarzenegger film, right? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Excellent. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Carell. Really love hearing your stories and insights. And, you know, it's interesting to see how this space has evolved and how much more it has to evolve. And for those founders who want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach you?
0: The best way is via email, LinkedIn. They can find me on Twitter as well. And I'm open to any discussions. So yeah, feel
1: free. Excellent. All right, guys, you heard it here. And until next time... See you later. See you later. Thanks for having me.